0: meetup.com slash chicagognosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy.
1: Are many forms of intelligence. It is an inherent aspect of any living thing, down from the smallest microbe to the atom to any living thing animals, plants, human beings. Unfortunately, in this humanity, people like to assume and believe that the human being as we are now is the height of intelligence the height of wisdom while certainly we have many advancements in technology many marvels the reality is that we continue to suffer and to be afflicted by many problems that our greatest scientists, philosophers, teachers cannot provide. All religions have taught in their heart that there is the possibility for something more and that that development is internal. We have the potential to become something beyond Comprehension at this level of what a human being can be. But fortunately, our humanity has received many messengers, many prophets, whether we call them angels, Buddhas, masters, gods, people who were once like us. And yet, learn to change themselves, to comprehend their own inner conditioning. So that by transforming their negativity, they became what we emulate. Jesus, Buddha, Moses, Krishna, the great prophets. Those who exemplified the highest ideals possible in a human being. Compassion that is selfless, unrelenting, divine. When Jesus was crucified, he only said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. He didn't have any malice in him because all those defects were destroyed in him through a long process of meditation, of purification, of practice. So, contrary to popular belief, a figure like Jesus or Buddha was once like us, afflicted. And yet they learned by developing their intelligence, their understanding, how to become great beings, great messengers. We can become like them, it is possible to overcome suffering on a grand scale within ourselves. And all those teachers emphasize that this path is meditation because it is an introspection, a method of looking, of gaining information, of developing our own understanding of who we are and not assuming that we know. Oftentimes, we say that we know a person we mention their manners, their words, their language, their behaviors. How often in our lives have we known someone who we assume to be a certain image, and yet in the next moment we learn of a great tragedy, a terrible action. We can look at the news to see people like this, individuals who seem like great saints, and then the next moment it's unveiled that they were into very degenerated behaviors which is contrary to that popular image that people had. While this is very common in our society on a more psychological level we do this with ourselves our own self-image who we assume to be what we like to project to the world to present to others to show we like to think that we know who we are our language, our name, our culture, the food we eat, the people we associate with, the music we listen to, the friends we have. But those things are temporary. They're not eternal. They're not our true divine nature. Divinity is not a person. An anthropomorphic figure in the clouds that sits in a throne of tyranny dispensing lightning bolts to a poor humanity like an anthill. That anthropomorphic figure does not exist, which is why even Friedrich Nietzsche, the author of Thus Spoke Zarathustra, said, God is dead, because that image does not exist. Instead, what exists is a type of intelligence which is beyond good and evil, which is terribly divine and sacred. And of course it's beyond our conceptions of what is good or bad. But is our true nature, our divine being, which is a state of consciousness, a state of perception, a state of intelligence. But in order to understand what that is, we have to learn to strip away that which is superfluous, which we think is us. Our sentiments, our sense of pride, our fears our anger our laziness gluttony greed lust passion these things that we like to assume as us who we are but which in the heart of every religion teaches is negative because those elements produce suffering when we say something negative to someone with anger we produce pain that is not our divine nature And it is not our true nature. Because a certain condition brought up that sense of self in which we said something negative and created a lot of problems. But unfortunately, we like to hold on to a sense of image of ourselves what we think we are, what we want other people to believe that we are. And many times we fight and even kill, or people even kill in the name of this sense of self that is so hurt. When one is betrayed, when one is slandered, one is gossiped to, one is lied to. It's sad, because even people who are filled with great defects have the potential to become something great. But in order to do so, they must use their genuine intelligence, their understanding of what divinity is, and learn to discriminate within the mind. That which is positive from that which is negative. That which produces happiness for oneself and others. Or pain. Everyone wants happiness. But not all people are willing to work on their own method of how to acquire it. Because everyone wants to enjoy life. Not to suffer. To not be in pain. And yet, our behaviors, in many cases are the very means by which we suffer, although we don't see it. In a spiritual sense, we're not very awake, aware of our full potential. Because if we knew divinity in us, moment by moment, without thinking of other things, without being distracted by life, naturally in any moments of great crisis, when presented with great traumas, sufferings, would affect us. We learn to engage in life with intelligence, understanding, knowing how to negotiate our spiritual nature with this chaotic world which does not know any order, which is falling apart. So real intelligence is divinity, is spiritual. And in this lecture we'll talk about how To develop that potential in us, how to change and how to make others happy, but not in the hallmark sense, as if we sacrifice our own needs. But there's a type of negotiation there. How do we help other people without compromising our spiritual nature? Not ego nature, not pride, laziness, fear. Defects. Those things need to be eliminated so that our true potential can emerge spontaneously in a beautiful way, in a profound way. So, our consciousness is in a potential state. It's not very active, although, in this level, we have a certain amount of intelligence and understanding. But that is not the full gamut of what we can become. We can become like a Jesus. A Buddha. And the word Buddha simply means awakened one. To be aware. To be attentive. From the prefix buddh, which means cognition, which can mean intelligence. That's a type of intelligence that knows how to respond to any circumstance without identifying, without provoking the anger of others or achieving this retaliation of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It's a compassionate state that can cut through illusion, through ignorance. And in that way, help others, but also help oneself. On a basic level, we see that we are awake. We understand, we learn, we speak, we communicate, we interact with the world. But most people do not ever question the manner and method by which one does so. Or even think that it's possible to change one's psychological states in relation to problems, ordeals, the sufferings of existence. But fortunately, there have been teachers who have taught a method and means by which to understand the process That path. That path is beautifully taught by many messengers, such as the Buddha, who explained that through understanding four noble truths, one can reach the cessation of suffering and the complete development of the human being. Other teachers knew the four noble truths whether from other religions, but the Buddha emphasized these four truths in a very didactic way, in a very profound way. He said that in life there is suffering, which is from the word dukkha. That word can mean many things. Displeasure, dissatisfaction, sorrow, pain. It can also mean disgust. And this is a very interesting term. Because for someone to really understand meditation... And to really access the divine. One has to be very tired of suffering. To not want to suffer anymore. To reach that point, rock bottom, where one realizes that if one does not change, then one will enter even greater states of suffering. But it's a type of realization, a type of displeasure with the facts of life. To want to question, is there more? Is there something else in this life that will produce happiness rather than a job, marriage, money, bank accounts? Things that, in the end, will leave us. But where will our consciousness go? Unfortunately for most people, they don't know. Or we don't know. Because we haven't awakened our perception. Most people have not. If you're familiar with teachings of astral projection, lucid dreams out-of-body experiences. There have been people who, by accident, have awakened consciousness in a state in which they were out of the body, physically. When the physical body goes to sleep, the soul goes out and usually projects its dreams within the screen of that dimension, which we'll talk about in relation to the Kabbalah, the Jewish mysticism, the tree of life. And for most of us, we go into that state every night we go to sleep but not aware. We may have some dreams, we project things, and then we wake up in the morning possibly remembering there was some kind of event that one experienced, and very unclear, usually very vague. But when we learn meditation, we can learn to be awake in that dream state, and no longer be dreaming, but aware of that world, which is a whole other way of being. And we have many methods you can use to experience that. And in that way, we realize that there is something more to life than just going through our grind. But when we learn to, again, remove the causes of suffering in us, we awaken consciousness. Most people are not aware of what those causes are, which we explain in our courses of Gnostic psychology. And the word gnosis in Greek means knowledge, experiential knowledge. That which we know for fact, what we perceive from experience, like a lucid dream or astral projection. These things are very real for those who awaken their perception, and learn to meditate. But those kind of experiences can help to inspire us to want to know more, to want to change. And in this tradition, we study practices to develop that potential that intelligence, that wisdom. So suffering has causes. Samudaya. This is where many people become hung up. The causes of suffering are internal. It is the hypnosis of the soul that we commonly experience where we usually like to blame the external life, external world for our suffering. Material needs, food, clothing, shelter, struggles at jobs, marriage difficulties. We usually like to just project our dreams onto the external world, not realizing that we're not very conscious. We're not very awake. Because somebody who is awake will not respond with anger to one's loved ones in a spiritual sense. The causes of suffering are psychological, are conditions of mind. Negative states that we created. But of course it takes tremendous courage to want to recognize that in ourselves. That we are responsible for the pains we go through. That our psychological state attracts our life. What happens to us? In many cases, not all. But those causes of suffering we call ego. The word ego in Latin means I. The sense of me, myself, who I am, my job, my race, my language, my habits, my friends, the way that we feel about ourselves, which is usually very egotistical, selfish, negative. But unfortunately, most people never question that self, like to feed it, like to indulge in desire, which is a craving for something that, once it's given, once it's satiated, it wants more. Contrary to popular psychology, when we feed anger, we don't remove it. It isn't annihilated. It doesn't cease to exist. In fact, it gets stronger and bigger and more monstrous. So this is something that in, self, in ourselves we can see. But fortunately, those egotistical qualities can cease to be. And that's the third truth. Nirvana. So in Sanskrit, nirvana means cessation, to cease suffering. And if we study Jewish mysticism and astral projection, those types of things, we know that nirvana is also a state of consciousness in different dimensions, which we can access when the physical body is asleep, and we go out in the dream world and learn to be awake. In that state, in order to ascend those heavens, mentioned so many times by Dante in his Divine Comedy, the Greek mythology, Islam, Sufism, Judaism, the Bible—they're all talking about the same thing. But if we want to access those states, we have to remove all the luggage from our subconsciousness, that which we're not aware of, because it's a type of baggage we carry with us wherever we go. Anger is a profound lead of the soul. It's heavy. It brings us down and brings other people down. Unfortunately, we've become victims to it many times, if we're honest. But, by learning to meditate and to observe ourselves, become aware of those qualities in us that need to change, we can change. So that that lead of the ego, according to the alchemists of medieval science, Can be transformed and transmuted into the gold of the spirit. Because part of our soul is trapped in anger, fear, pride, and all that conglomeration of defects we carry. And like the genie from Aladdin's lamp, we can extract the genie, the intelligence, our divine nature, and then break the lamp. And that's a beautiful Arabian myth about how our soul has so much potential, it can grant any wish. But we have to remove the causes of suffering which is psychological. We do that through meditation specifically. And in that way we learn to vibrate at higher levels of being. Ways of consciousness. So that naturally we learn to astral project every night. Have experiences of a spiritual type. Learn to meditate. Speak face to face in that world, that dimension with Jesus or Buddha or Muhammad or Krishna or whatever prophets we have an affinity for they're very awake and we can talk to them like we're talking here or seeing each other here it's a very real thing but we want us to work for it it's not easy to renounce anger when we're criticized and suddenly we feel that desire to say something very negative and we do and that of course provokes the other person causes conflict but if we learn to be patient no matter how wrong that person is, or whatever crimes they have committed, again, we can create distance or a sense of non-identification with them, not judging them. Because we tend to carry many elements in us that we blame in others. But seeing that is difficult. But there is a path that teaches us this process, which is marga, the path of cessation. It means path, a way, a method. And that method is very specific. It's been in all religions, all traditions. Before, of course, those teachings degenerate with time because when exposed to humanity, obviously people's own psychological corruption adulterates, impedes, breaks apart that message. But that knowledge is known as Gnosis in Greek, which is something we study in this school. It's a Greek word meaning experiential knowledge. What we verify through facts, and not what we assume to be. So, again, as I said, we tend to assume many things about ourselves, if we're honest. But this doesn't mean this type of questioning of oneself should produce pessimism or negativity. But a type of inquiry type of investigation. I know a lot of people, they hear my anger, my pride, my negativity, my ego, myself must die. And people become terrified. What will I be when that is gone? My language, my name, my personality, my customs, my race. But at the same time, we have something that's genuine in us, which is pure. The Buddhists call it Buddha-dhatu, Buddha-nature. The possibility to be awake, to be intelligent, to be spiritual. Because we all have that capacity. It's just not developed. It can easily be developed. It just takes a certain method and discipline with oneself. And again, that path is in all religions. Especially the Jewish Kabbalah. So, you can see here an image of ten spheres, which are known in Hebrew as sephirot. This is a map of consciousness, a map of the soul, from the very heights of the divine to the most basic, most material, most physical. This is a map of our intelligence, our whole spiritual nature. At the top, if you notice, you'll see a trinity. Actually, there are three trinities here. An upright triangle, two lower triangles, and a bottom sphere. Kabbalah is known as the science of numbers. It's a means by which we can interpret any tradition on the planet, any scripture, any book, as well as our own experiences in meditation, it's a map of the multidimensionality of the soul, from the external to the internal. We have the most divine principles in us, which some traditions have called Christ, which in Hebrew are known as Keter, Hokma, Bina—Father, Son, Holy Spirit—amongst the Christians. Or, amongst the Egyptians, Osiris, Horus, Isis. Or the Nordics, Votan, Baldur, Thor. Different names, one reality. And so, this is an expression of what we really are in our most fundamental depth. In Hebrew, those terms, Keter, Chukmah, Binah, mean crown, wisdom, and intelligence. These are three forces in nature, within us, within the cosmos. This top trinity, these three forces, are one but three. They express as three. They create every living thing in this universe. They spread as three points and then become one. They concentrate. On a very basic level, we can see that there is a father, a masculine principle, a woman, a feminine principle, and then the third, which is the child, the synthesis of the man and woman on a sexual level. So these three forces relate to creation, and especially to what we call the creative energies in us, which through meditative discipline we can harness and use for our spirituality. But below that, there are, there's more. This divine force in the cosmos descends into more concrete levels of experience, of dimensionality, which again, we can experience when we meditate. We have an astral projection or an awakened experience. We have chesed in Hebrew, which means mercy. That is our inner spirit, our own particular Buddha nature. Our inner God, which emanates from the top trinity, from the cosmos. That spirit is unique to us, individual in us, but also is a conduit by which we can be one with all things, all beings. And the quality of that sephirah or sphere is love, compassion. And then on the left we have a sphere called geborah, which in Hebrew means justice. That is a type of conscious state that is very pure. It is the spiritual soul, spiritual consciousness, which never mixes with any type of impurity, any defect. It is justice because our consciousness knows how to judge between right and wrong. We usually call this voice conscience, like in the story of Pinocchio. Pinocchio has a cricket on his shoulder named Jiminy who always tells him this is good this is bad it's a symbol of this Pinocchio was a wooden boy, a puppet influenced by the strings of life his own defects but he wants to become a real human being a divine being even the word Pinocchio in Tuscan is pine seed a seed that could become a pine tree this is known as the tree of life in the book of Genesis, in the Bible. It's a map. Not a literal plant in the Middle East many ages ago. Not a literal story. A symbolic one. And so, Jiminy Cricket is always warning Pinocchio, you needed to do this and this. But, of course, Jiminy Cricket gets killed at one point, at least in the, in the book, by Carlos Collodi. And the film does a good job of depicting the same truths by uh, Disney. But, Some things they left out. But of course Jiminy Cricket comes back because the consciousness is eternal. It always comes back to warn us in our heart that sense of judgment that knows that a certain action is wrong. But usually the mind interferes and says, I have many excuses, I should do this because it's the right thing and we rationalize later on. But in the heart we feel the consequences. That's judgment. Beneath that we have a sphere called Tiferet which in Hebrew means beauty, splendor. It is the beauty of the soul, our true, we could say, Buddha nature. So again, there are unfoldments and levels and levels of divinity in us. But this is really what we call human soul, our will. When we will something, we do it. It could be either conscious or in most people, it tends to be unconscious. Even in popular psychology taught by Freud, he often spoke about competing wills, competing desires, subliminal impulses in the mind. So Tifereth can either reflect the beauty of God or the negative beauty of our own defects, our own hell realms, we could say, our own states of suffering. Beneath that we have Netzach, which means victory. That is our mind, our thoughts, our concepts, which is again becoming more concrete. You can notice here that as we're descending down this tree of life, we can start to grasp certain things in ourselves. The mind is more concrete. We're more aware of that because we tend to be influenced or dominated by Netzach. To the left of that is Hod, which in Hebrew means Glory. That is our emotions, what some people call the astral body. When we go to dream at night, we enter the world of Hod, which is known as the fifth dimension. That is a world in which we dream, typically, but usually without awareness. It is an emotional plane, emotional dimension, because many people, they have dreams, they start to sense and feel strong emotional reactions. And many times we tend to dream about things that happen at work or in our day. The reason being is the life we live here physically is repeated in the dream state. We just don't have any cognition of it, we're usually not aware of it. So we repeat things, but without knowing where we are, without recognizing where we are. But we have techniques in this tradition that teach us how, when in that state, we can awaken. And we'll teach that in our courses of astral projection and dream yoga. The science of dreams. Beneath that is yasod, which means foundation. This is our creative energy. As I said, the creative energy is divine. We can learn to use our energies in our body, in our glands, especially the sexual glands. To learn to take those forces and use them for divinity. Divinity. And that can serve as the foundation by which we can access with consciousness these higher spheres. These higher Sephiroth. We see that Yesod is the foundation. Our energy is the foundation. Because without vital energy we would not have life. Even physically. So Malkut, if you look below, which means kingdom, is our physical body. Our physicality. That is What we typically only know. But Malkut, the physical body, would not exist if we didn't have vitality. Enough energy to get through our day or to live. Some people, they feel depleted. They say, I need to sleep. Because the vital body needs to recharge. That vital energy needs to work in us. So I'm mentioning different bodies, different vehicles by which we express ourselves in different dimensions. It's unfortunate that we tend to only believe that this physical plane is all there is. But when we learn to awaken in dreams, we find that even our vital energies form a vehicle, a kind of body that penetrates this physical body, gives it life, gives it the ability to act and move. There's also an emotional body known as Hod, a vehicle we usually work with in dreams, but unconsciously. There's also a mind or mental body, a mental vehicle. And above that, we have more subtle aspects of divinity, which are difficult to comprehend at this level. But we can access those in us through practice. We will see more and more how this glyph represents who we are and our potential. So I mentioned the Tree of Life in a lecture about intelligence. The word intelligence comes from Latin, meaning realizing, understanding, perceiving, discerning. It refers to intelligo, inter, meaning between, and lego, meaning collect or recite from the verb. Real intelligence is knowing the relationship of ourselves to other things, and even within us. It's a profound state of intelligence to know the relationship between mind and heart mind and body will and spirit spirit and the highest divinity which intelligence is represented in the Kabbalah this third sephirah or sphere Bina. remember that this top trinity is the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit Keter, Chokmah, Binah Binah is known as intelligence Understanding. It is a part of us, an energy that makes it possible to experience the whole tree of life and to learn how to work in this physical world with wisdom so that we may be crowned by divinity through our actions, rewarded for performing good things, good deeds. What's interesting is that the word Kabbalah in Hebrew. Comes from Kabel, which means to receive. It is what we receive from divinity. It is a word that refers to the Greek gnosis, knowledge we experience, things that we see for ourselves, that we witness directly. And in that way, in meditation, we calm the body, relax our energies. Relax our heart. Relax our mind. And in that way, we can start to learn to direct our willpower, our concentration. Which, if you're familiar with meditation, we often speak about concentration exercises. These are means by which we learn to focus on one thing without thinking. In that simple synopsis, we find that we find the lower five sephiroth of the tree of life represented... Our physical body, Malkut, needs to relax. We need to understand our relationship to our body so that we can be healthy, can be strong. That's uh, one form of intelligence. Also, we need to learn to work with our vital forces, our vital energies, which we can do so through breathing exercises or mantras. That That helps to circulate energy by vocalizing throughout our vital depth, our vital body. And that helps to stabilize everything. If you notice that Yasaad is the center of the Tree of Life, the very bottom, it's the foundation of all practice. We have to learn how to conserve energy. Most of the time in our day, we we expel energy, physically, emotionally, mentally, and that's why many people who begin meditation usually leave because they're not seeing results. The problem is that they're not working with the foundation. It's important to work with energy so that it can empower our consciousness, our soul, so that it can be awake, spontaneously, natural, happy. Likewise, in meditation, we calm the heart, the emotional center, Hod. We need to understand our relationship with our emotions and not be a victim of them. I believe it was the founder of the Muslim tradition says something very interesting. The Prophet Muhammad said, The strongest among you is he who controls his anger. Very interesting. Because when we learn to control the heart and conserve our emotional energies, we learn to awaken in that dimension. We naturally experience that state for ourselves. We learn to understand and discern with intelligence to perceive. That which is objective from that which is subjective. Real from false. Awake from dreaming. So we want to stop dreaming in that state. We want to be awake, to be intelligent, to know our relationship with those things directly. Likewise, we have to relax the mind. And this is very difficult for many people. It's common that when we sit to practice, we find that the mind is thinking We're always thinking of other things. Being distracted. Filled with memories or daydreams. Concepts. Comparisons. Contrasts. Disagreements. Agreements. The mind's always churning. It's a big ocean. That's always in a storm or flux. And when people see this in themselves, usually they get frightened. They see that the mind is so chaotic in the beginning. They get scared. And they say, this practice is harming me. Because this is what I see in myself. The reality is that one is becoming to see for oneself what is already there. It's subconscious. Our mind, as Freud taught, is very subconscious. Likewise, our emotions and our impulses, our drives. But if one is persistent by working with concentration exercises, by using one's willpower, one's focus, To take an object of practice and not let the mind wander, just focus on one thing, like a stone or a statue or a painting. The mind calms. It settles. If you fight the mind, it will churn. It will be in chaos. But if you just observe the mind and relax, everything settles. So, meditation is or preparation for meditation involves that. Relax your body, your energies, your heart, your mind, and then direct your will on one thing. It could be many things you want to meditate on. Maybe a problem, asking a question of divinity where you want to receive an answer. Maybe a personal challenge or difficulty, looking for guidance for something in your daily life that you can't resolve. It's funny that people think that the mind is going to answer that question. It's a common assumption. Even in business meetings, there are people who spend hours and hours debating, using their intellect, to argue the solution for a problem. But then when they take a break for 15 minutes, they walk away, they stop thinking of the problem. Suddenly, the answer comes. The intuition, the insight And in that way, they come back to the meeting recharged, understanding what they need to do. And in that way, that's a basic example, but when we learn meditation, first, preliminary concentration exercises, relaxing the mind, the heart, the energies, and the body, everything settles, so that we can learn to perceive these higher five sephiroth, these higher spheres, with our consciousness, which is gibberah, The sphere on the left. It's also in that way we can even have astral experiences in which we speak face to face with our own inner spirit, our own inner God, our Buddha. And even higher spheres above that, which are very difficult to conceptualize at our level, but they exist in us nonetheless. So, this is a map of intelligence, our relationship to different things in us. And in the multidimensionality of nature. It is a process of discernment, questioning in us what's real, what's factual, and discarding what's useless, so that we can learn to have that communication, that understanding of what divinity is. And even the word understandan from Old English, to understand, we know is very basic, to grasp the idea of, to comprehend. To perceive the significance, meaning, explanation, or cause of something. Meditation is about comprehension, understanding. So that when our mind and heart and body are settled, we can concentrate and even reflect on our day where we are observing ourselves, becoming aware of what situations in life provoke certain defects, certain problems that we want to change. And then we can concentrate on those moments. Reflect and imagine them. Visualize them. See them with our consciousness. So that we can get knowledge, understanding. What's the appropriate way to behave in this situation? For example, at work, I've been reflecting on conflict with some clients of mine who are very aggressive and very disrespectful. And I've noticed they've been provoking with their behavior Certain qualities in me that are negative or egotistical. Frustration. I want them to be a certain way to behave a certain way because it's the right thing. Or that's the logic that is associated with that thought. You can see that you have the mind there. But also the negative emotion, hold, which feels that I'm being wronged. And also the will to act, but negatively. To say the wrong things, to do the wrong things that make the situation worse. So I've been meditating on certain... Circumstances of my job. And by learning to relax, to concentrate, and to ask for help from my inner divinity, my inner spirit, I've been getting experiences about what I need to do at my job, understanding the right way to act, the right way to think, to feel, and to do. According to the Buddha, upright thought, upright feeling, upright action. And in that way, I've been able to transform. Many problems. And now, my clients in the beginning who are very rough, they can still be pretty antagonistic, but they respect me. There isn't that type of distrust anymore from the beginning. So things can change, but gradually. And then when we work with our concentration, again, we're working with our consciousness too the ability to imagine or perceive. This word imagination is often denigrated today as something fake or fantastical but if I ask you to imagine an apple you can see it not with physical senses but psychological ones that's the quality of our consciousness and when you combine your will your concentration your focus on one thing and imagining a scene in your day where you want to understand something suddenly the comprehension emerges relating to the spirit has said. And that's what it means. That helps us to become spiritual beings. Because a spiritual being has intelligence, understands how to resolve problems without thinking, not rationalizing, but knowing intuitively and acting immediately in the moment so that it's very profound, divine. Understanding can also refer to to interpret or view something in a particular way to view ourselves in a new way, to understand something about ourselves that we never thought we had. It can be negative, but also it can be very positive. Because we have qualities in us that are divine that we have no idea exist. But when you meditate, you find that true, divine, heroic nature in you which knows how to conquer affliction and all suffering. So understanding also refers to Perceiving the significance, explanation, or cause of something. In this Buddhist sense, or in a religious or spiritual sense, it can refer to understanding the causes of our own suffering, our own egotistical drives, which manifest in our thoughts, our feeling, our body and energies, but also our will, depending on how we use it. So if you remember the prayer of Jesus of Nazareth in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, Father, if it be possible... Take this cup of bitterness from me. But not my will, but thine be done. It refers to Tiferet, the heart. It's a symbol. And his passion is a, that he lived physically was a means of teaching something psychological. Because every person needs to face their own type of ordeals and struggles in life. Their own crucifixion, in a manner of speaking. But if we learn to meditate and remove the causes of suffering... We can, according to the myth of Jesus, resurrect. The soul is absorbed in the divinity, and then one experiences and is self-realized, has realized all the spheres of this tree of life. They're integrated. They're one. Because right now, our thoughts, our feelings, and our wills tend to be very disparate. In a moment, we may be washing our dishes and thinking of one thing, feeling another we have the desire to go out and work out or followed by eating no I want to read something else I want to do something else we're always changing in flux we're constantly thinking and doing other things never aware of where we are at or what we are doing we call that ego and the ego is not singular as we like to think or popular culture likes to think ego is ego's Anger, pride, fear, lust, laziness, gluttony, all those faults we carry inside are multiple. They have their own agendas, ways of thinking, feeling, and doing. But it's because we're not attentive, we don't really discriminate or distinguish between the differences between those states. But meditation will teach one how to discern with intelligence what is going on psychologically. Of course, it's unpleasant in the beginning to realize that This anger or this fear or this sense of self is not singular. This is a big chaos, multiple. But as taught within many myths, and as taught by the Tree of Life and through meditation, we can unify the soul, achieve the realization of divinity in us. So to interpret or view something in a particular way, be thoroughly familiar with, apprehend clearly the character, nature, or subtleties of something. So again, to interpret or view something in a particular way, how do we view ourselves? It's good to ask this question. Not from a skeptical, pessimistic standpoint, a morbid sense of self-flagellation and shame. Oh, I'm a bad person. But just to ask the question and look, what is going on in me? Who am I? To question and to examine oneself with a psychological sense. We call it self-observation. To be aware of oneself. And to not want to judge or praise or condemn what we see. Just to be aware, awake. And in that way, we gather data about our own faults so that we can change. And therefore, then, our understanding of ourselves will be on a true foundation because the word understand literally implies that we are standing on something we all tend to stand on some sense of identity or assumptions of ourselves which other people may criticize and point out are wrong but usually we feel very hurt we don't want to be criticized or questioned but it's good to ask the question when that experience unfolds well maybe they're right to ask that question What if they are right? That they see something in me that I don't see? Other people tend to see things in ourselves that we don't see ourselves. And not be afraid, but just examine to be aware. This is the foundational method of meditation so that we can stand on strong ground. Because when you stand on facts, we're not hurt. I believe there's a saying in the book Way of the Bodhisattva by Shantideva. He explains how if somebody says something to us and it's hurtful, if it's a lie, why get mad? If it's true, why get mad? If one confronts oneself and is working, it doesn't hurt. It doesn't matter. And in this way, by asking that type of question... We learn to transform our situation. In these studies, we talk about the transformation of impressions. We say that life exists as it does in the form of impressions. We see through our senses. We hear, we feel, we taste, we touch, we smell. We can say that all of life exists in the form of energies or impressions. Whether we're looking outside, we see the rain... People walking, we can say that those people are outside of us, but at the same time, the impressions of those experiences always enter into the psyche, moment by moment. There's never a moment in which we don't perceive perceptions or perceive something, even at death or in sleep, usually, because the consciousness is eternal, it always will exist. But in different modalities or formations, depending on how we use it, how we use our mind, our energies, our heart, our will, our consciousness. And so everything always exists in the form of impressions. You're here listening to me, receiving the impressions of my words. It may enter your psyche and emotionally you may be feeling or ascertaining something, thinking of something, related to it. The mind is always reacting to impressions. It's a dynamic thing And if we learn to be aware As meditators We realize that The sense that there is an external world Is Illusory Everything is within us If we're attentive And I'm sure all of us Have experienced, especially in youth Moments in which we're very clear and awake Just seeing life and movement Without thinking Without rationalizing Especially in childhood, we, had, we might have had many of those experiences in which we just see the impressions of life without judging, without labeling, without conceptualizing. This is good, this is bad. But that tends to be the psychological dynamic of our experience. We're caught in duality. Back and forth. Good, bad. Yes, no. Pleasure, pain. Happiness, sadness. Excitement. Fear. Duality. And that's a pendulum of the consciousness that puts us to sleep. We're always running away from unpleasant impressions in life and running towards pleasant ones. But the thing is, why get attached to either a coffee cake or one's family and want to run away from one's boss when he's angry? Because the reality is that all that is temporary. Nothing is permanent. Everything's in flux. Impressions emerge and enter our consciousness, our psyche. But the problem is that we tend to receive life in a very mechanical way. We don't really question what we're seeing. Or better said, how we are perceiving those experiences. So physically we may know that we're seated here. But the question is, are we actively observing where we are? Are we aware of the ceiling? The murals? Or the decorations? The plants? The equipment around our Cells, the art, the street. Are we really looking at those impressions with a fresh look? Are we seeing it with new eyes, moment by moment? Or do we just look at things and get lost in our thoughts? Sometimes we may be walking on the street, such as in Chicago or any city, and that we're thinking and thinking and thinking of a problem we don't see where we're at or where we're going? It means that we're not awake. We're dreaming. Is that type of psychology that goes with us wherever we go. So if we're not training ourselves moment by moment or day by day, then when we physically go to sleep or when we die, we're going to repeat the same mechanical habits and go through that delicate transition point without attention, without understanding. So I know I mentioned a lot about death and dreams. It's interesting that in the Greek mythology, Thanatos and Hypnos, death and sleep, are brothers. If we're awake in our dreams, we will be awake when we die. So meditation is the means of preparing for that. And the way that we prepare for that is learning to look at life with awareness. To see impressions of life, but attentive. And not reacting all the time, mentally. The mind tends to chatter. We're always commenting on what we see, what we hear, what we feel, what we do. Someone says something negative, we have the reaction of anger or pride or whatnot. Impressions enter us and we are reacting. Well the way that you enter into comprehension or meditation is learning to receive those impressions of life, whether good or bad, but with neutrality. Neither favoring nor rejecting. But it doesn't mean that one is going to be bland. Neutrality, we think, means neither hot or cold or just lukewarm dispassionate, unconcerned. There is a connotation in the English language, but it's better if we say that type of sentiment or neutrality is very clear, very pristine, very divine. And which one enjoys the flow of life, free in its movement, here and now. It doesn't get caught up with the repetitions of life, the duality, I must... Be successful at my job. I'm going to run away from painful circumstances, but confront every situation with consciousness. So, when we have a problem at work with our mind training, we're not affected by what happens. We can respond with understanding, intelligence, negotiating our sense of self with the exterior world. And in that way, we transform our situations. Because we tend to react to life with ego, defects. But in those critical moments at work or in a certain challenging circumstances of life, someone says something negative, but with our mind training, we question the insulter's words. They say something bad about us. I remember uh, at my work, I had one client say to me, Yeah, he thinks he's really good about me. And I looked at him. And I was starting to sense in myself a reaction of negativity, like I was being insulted or hurt. But then I realized that the words of this person doesn't really matter so much as my investment in those words, what I think about what he said. And in that moment, I comprehended that, well, he has his understanding of what I am, and he could be right, or he could be wrong. And then I had a sense of peace in order to respond to him appropriately. And I said, yes, actually, no, you're wrong. I'm not good. I'm great. And being funny about it and joking around dissipated the tension. So comprehension can work like that. We learn to negotiate ourselves with other people. We don't respond with negativity. But even when people are very bad around us, we don't have to go along with it. But that sense of self, which is neutral, that attention or conscious state in which we're no longer thinking... We learn to act with love, with serenity, with insight. And, again, some people think or get worried that if I annihilate the ego, this, my defects, what will I be? Well, you'll be charismatic or compassionate or happy or patient or loving or funny or humorous and divine. Knowing how to respond to any circumstance appropriately. So this is what we call a transformation of impressions. And it's interesting, we look at some of the etymology of this word. Impressio, to impress, meaning pressed in. From the verb imprimere, to imprint. An effect produced upon someone. A mark impressed on a surface by something. It's interesting that we find the word imprint, you know, when people say things that are bad, if we just identify and invest all of our energy into that comment, those words imprint something in our psyche. It conditions us. We feed our anger and feel resentful, proud, hurt. It's a f- type of imprinting on the soul, on the mind. And that creates more problems, more defects. Because we're investing our energy in a sense of self, which is, in the spiritual sense, not real not objective real intelligence is knowing that the relationship between self and other is illusory and Buddhism talks about this a lot that everything exists upon other things, there's nothing intrinsically existing in and of itself impressions emerge, we react and that there's always a dynamic interchange of relationships of problems But if we learn to see that those words no longer have any meaning, someone criticizes us, we don't invest ourselves in those words. We don't feel hurt. Maybe psychologically there's something deep down that we need to see. So we go home, we meditate on what we saw, so that we can remove all those latent, subtle frustrations or desires which are lingering. And more and more we learn to transform our psyche day by day. On another level, the transformation impressions exist when we develop our intelligence. Again, intelligence is how do we discriminate between phenomena of what we see, of what we sense. Another example of this is a person may walk down the street and sees images of a lustful type, of a degenerate type, which is making certain desires emerge in the psyche which are negative. If one comprehends that this person in which one is attracted to so much, this woman or this figure, if we imagine that, well, in 20, 30 years, 50 years, 60, 70 years, this person may be dust and bones. So what is the nature of this lustful intention that I feel in myself? What is it? What is this desire? What does it want? How does it exist? Because our defects, our desires, our egotism, our egos, always feed upon the impressions of life, always want certain stimuli. Anger wants to hurt the other person because it is hurt. Pride wants to belittle because it wants praise. Greed wants to accumulate material things, or even spiritual things, ideas, fame, attention, energy. Fear wants security, wants things to be what it wants. So those defects are always wanting certain impressions of life and the reason why we suffer so much is because we're attached to that sense of self which wants something that doesn't exist. It's not there. We're always fighting against the reality of our situation, wanting things to be a different way. But if we learn to accept our situation with gladness, things will change as we're changing our negative states transforming the impressions of our psyche that we didn't transform in the past. This is where traumas emerge. Something happened, an impression emerged, came into our psyche. We weren't aware. And it affected us. You can think of something like 9-11. People on the site who witnessed those buildings come crashing down and people dying were traumatized. They weren't aware of what was going on and obviously that kind of violence is very destructive, even psychologically. Some people are still grappling with the pains of that incident, even from across the world, who just watched it on television. But imagine someone who actually was in that situation where they received those impressions, and because they were not aware, they didn't know how to transform it. And so that type of experience replays in the mind again and again and again. Those impressions are in the psyche. They form new defects, new desires, new traumas, new problems. The way to resolve that is to develop attention, awareness. And in that way, we learn to see suffering and go at the root of our problems. In this last slide, we're looking at the summation of meditative discipline, according to what we call the Egyptian tarot. So, if you've listened on to ChicagoGnosis.org, we have a course that's presently ongoing about these cards. These are images that reflect spiritual principles spiritual truths. We have the first three arcana, or laws of the divine. These cards represent qualities of consciousness, qualities of being. It also can teach us about meditation, more importantly. In the first image we have the magician, a representation of what we call the divine father, our spirit, our true Buddha nature, our being, our inner God. I want to explain all the symbolism of these images in depth. If you're interested in learning more about this, you can study our course, The Eternal Tarot of Alchemy and Kabbalah, online. But you notice that he's a standing figure. He's masculine. He's got a staff in his hand representing his willpower, his assertiveness, his masculinity. Likewise, we have his opposite, the second arcana, the second law, which is the high priestess. She's sitting. She's the divine feminine, the divine mother of any religion, whether it be Mary amongst the Christians, Maya, Miriam, Adonia amongst the Kabbalists, Shekinah, Diana, Hera, or the wife of Jupiter. So, all those religions can be explained through these principles. But more importantly, what's interesting is that she's sitting. She represents a feminine aspect of our consciousness, a feminine quality, which is more perceptive, more intuitive, more emotional. The first aspect of ourselves is will, assertiveness, which we call willpower. And then in the last image, we find a woman seated with a beautiful Ibis bird. She is the empress of the Tyrells. She has stars above her head, meaning that she's illuminated. She has comprehension. She has understanding. So these three cards are interesting because they summarize the path of meditation in depth. In order to really meditate on a problem or issue or to gain understanding or intelligence of something, we concentrate. We use our willpower. We focus on one thing, at the exclusion of everything. So we sit to practice, and we want to understand a scripture or a book, We read a verse and we concentrate on it. And we can also visualize in our consciousness imagine what the words are representing. We concentrate, we relax. Some people think concentration is something overexertive, like one's lifting weights. Concentration is a profound state of relaxation. It knows how to act but without exerting the mind, without agitation, without disturbance. is calm, serene. So notice that even though he's standing very firmly, he's also very calm. And on his right, the high priestess, the divine feminine, is seated and reading a book. It's a symbol of how we learn to read the book of our life, the chapters of our existence, our mornings, our afternoons, our days, our evenings, and really reflect with our imagination and see what in those circumstances need to be studied, so that through the combination of will and, co- and imagination, we gain understanding, intelligence. We learn to discern right from wrong, good from bad, positive from negative, negative. and that state of understanding is what gives us real peace. We're no longer afflicted, even if we have problems that can't get resolved, sufferings we can't change. At least we don't identify with those circumstances we're at peace. Very strong. Because we know that eventually, this body will go and the soul will move on. And if we're awake, we'll take advantage of those circumstances. If we're not, there's another issue. Willpower and imagination make comprehension? So, in the example I gave you, you can concentrate and develop your concentration by focusing on one thing. Some people begin with a stone or a pebble or something basic doesn't take much effort to focus on i like to use a candle when i first started i would take a candle light the flame look at it observe the fire you'll find that the mind will start to drift and start thinking of other things but the purpose of the practice is don't think just look that's the state of consciousness of attention when we're no longer thinking of other things that concentration becomes very profound so that you can learn to direct it at more elevated things like a scripture or a book the meaning thereof comprehending a certain defect that emerged in the day you focus concentrate on remembering those events and then the next part imagine visualize those scenes also visualization can be developed through that candle practice sometimes in the beginning it's difficult to see things mentally we don't see much clarity or color or depth But if you learn to take that candle and observe it for a few moments, then close your eyes and try to imagine that candle in your mind without vacillating or letting the mind change it. If you find the mind starts doing that, just relax, look again at the candle, gently reinitiate the practice. And in that way, we learn to develop more clarity and depth in our visualization practices. The combination of concentration and imagination allow us to access any knowledge we want so we can fall asleep while concentrating and imagining a certain thing. Then we go to sleep physically and then the soul awakens in the internal dimensions and we see those states of being with clarity. And on the beginning people will see very vague things and amorphous things. But With practice, such as with these two exercises, we gain more clarity and understanding. And in that way we learn to develop more understanding in our own life. How to Navigate this world we live in with patience and serenity. Because if we have understanding, we're no longer so troubled or conflicted. We learn to negotiate ourselves with intelligence, with this world, with clarity. If you have any questions? interested, I invite you to study the writings we have available. You can view them online and they're full publications on GnosticTeachings.org So if there's a particular topic that you listened to or heard today in relation to our synopsis or synthesis you can go online and look at the books we have available. We do have some available in print here, but you can always go online and read them if you're interested and purchase them from online. And so there's a lot we covered But the synthesis is this be aware, be attentive. And these practices can help to elevate our level of being, our way of being, so that we learn to find more happiness in our life, find joy, even when circumstances are very painful. Because one who has divinity inside active doesn't despair, doesn't fear. It not worry. I have a sure. What is, what is your favorite book? Oh, my favorite book. I do like a lot of classical mythology, especially, because those myths teach us Kabbalah. I remember taking a course on classical mythology, classical literature, specifically. Which, of course, the professor didn't know the real... I mean, they asked the depth of these stories, but... You know, some of my favorites is like the Odyssey, which relates to the principles we talked about today. In the poem by Homer, Odysseus is stranded on many from place to place after he is victorious in the Trojan War. He was the mastermind that created the Trojan horse and invaded the city in order to sack it. But then he goes home, having angered Poseidon. And Poseidon is a representation in Kabbalah of of Binah the Holy Spirit amongst the Christians and so he angered Poseidon because he took credit for the works that divinity did for him it's a symbol of you know, and the symbolism of war and all that it's not literal it's about the war of the soul against desire but he has to journey from island to island again and again facing death starvation assault and all sorts of terrible things, which are symbolic of the spiritual path one has to face. Of course, he gets to the end. His whole crew's been annihilated. Basically, they all died, and he was the only one who survived. Swam to shore to Ithaca, his home. And he gets there, and Athena warns him, "Your wife is under assault here. There are many suitors trying to marry your wife, Penelope, because it's been twenty years since you've been here. They think you're dead." Say, very interesting. All these men are trying to marry his wife. And Penelope is a beautiful symbol of the soul. She's the soul that is being afflicted by many suitors, many lustful elements, egos, defects. And Athena, the divine feminine, which we can call the divine mother, Kundalini amongst the Hindus, she disguises him as a beggar and then he has to gain intel about all the suitors who are trying to marry his wife. He can't can't show who he is. If he gets mad and shows himself that he's Odysseus, they're going to kill him. But it's interesting that if you look at the word intelligence, even the word intel is using is government slang, finding data about your enemies. So he's finding all this intelligence and information about how these suitors are working. Who are they aligned to? Who they are? What are they doing? What is their methods? It's a symbol of how one in meditation is working against certain defects gaining understanding of them. And of course, they humiliate him. They beat him. They call him a beggar. They mock him for many chapters towards the end of the book or end of the poem. But the crony moment is when he's in the throne room facing a challenge that Penelope places that she will only marry the suitor or man who can fire an arrow through all... I don't remember the number of rings of an axe lodged in the floor. Were, but can fire an arrow through all of them. And all the suitors are trying to take Odysseus's bow... And pull the string. And it it's so heavy and strong that they can't. And here's this beggar, Odysseus, or disguised as a beggar, who comes up and says, I'll take the challenge. Of course, all the suitors become enraged because they've been mocking him the whole time. They don't know who he is. He pulls the bow, puts the string on easily. And then he takes an arrow, fires it through the rings. And all of them are shocked that he accomplished it. Then he takes an arrow and fires it at one of the suitors and kills him. They become terrified and enraged and say, what are you doing, old man? And then Athena unveils who he is. He says, I am Odysseus, whom you thought was dead. And now I will kill every single one of you for having tried to take my home and squander my property. It's a symbol of all the soul. Our consciousness goes to war against our defects. And it's very strong, at that level especially. And even the bow is a symbol of negotiating the external with the internal. You pull the bow, you're focusing on what's outside of you, your target, with your concentration. And with your willpower, you take the arrow, your perception, see the target, fire. Concentration, imagination. And in that way, when we comprehend our defects, we kill them. And then you can extract the soul that's been trapped in there and develop virtue. It's a symbol of... uh, what some people call Buddhist annihilation, which is a term that frightens people, but you know when the ego is annihilated, the soul is born, is pure. I love that poem a lot. You know It's a very beautiful symbol, but people read it and they're very entertained. Yeah, Odysseus gets revenge. They think it's just a literal story. Yeah, I mean, you can read it that way, but there's a lot of esoteric truths in these fables or stories, which are very beautiful. So, with the bow and arrow, your concentration, your perception, your imagination... You focus on each defect you want to work on. And when the moment comes, when the comprehension is full, you can kill that element and be free of it. And, yeah, I remember the Odyssey is a very beautiful story about that. But there's many more stories that are very profound. But a lot of the stories that, you know, we've been able to study and explain in our courses come from the writings of Island Vior specifically. He's a writer on many esoteric topics, whose works are just becoming more familiar in the, the West, in North America especially. He's from Latin America. Uh, some of my favorite books of his when I first started was Treaties of Revolutionary Psychology, where he explains many of the principles we talked about. Self-observation, remembering the presence of divinity, learning to gather data about one's faults. It's a very good book to begin with. I know I began many years ago with that book, especially. It's one of my favorites. Something you revisit again and again, because you're always learning very deep text and very direct has a lot of knowledge there and very rich too so when you can take when you understand that type of teaching you can look at any scripture any book any mythology and you can interpret what's going on you can use your intelligence to understand the relationship between characters and ideas it, it ceases to be some kind of academic literary thing but you're seeing things in the book that people don't really understand or know about which are very profound so if you have no more questions, we'll conclude.
0: Like, so I'm trying to... Sure. I'm trying to stop saying, like, buying stuff and media and... Right. Um, how, how does... Uh, how do you guys look at... I mean, like, is sports demonic in any kind
1: of way? Well, I'd say some sports more than others. Like football. If you enjoy it, I mean, it's your business, right? But uh, I know some sports are much more vulgar. Like, I mean, what is it? UFC, fighting championship, or whatever. That, you know, people boxing. are boxing that are very violent. Um, those things are obviously very negative. I mean, I know many people, even instructors in our tradition, who watch sports and games and they're ten by it, but they like. You know, I don't know many who watch UFC where guys are pounding each other into hamburger. But, you know, that kind of thing is, is... That's very negative, especially. And I believe some island V.R was writing in some of his books how certain sports were the degeneration of ancient traditions from long ago, from a history that many people don't even know about. Like, for example, the bullfighting rings. He talks about how bullfighting was an art that was practiced in a different, in a different humanity on this planet before our race emerged very long ago which not many people are familiar with. But he stated that those people would not kill the bull in a vulgar way like we see today. It's a symbol of how they would use certain, like the Toreador would use a lasso and a rope and a sword symbolically to subdue the bull, which is a symbol of conquering the mind, controlling the mind. But they wouldn't kill the bull because the bull is a, has a beautiful soul, elemental soul, which is Pure. And But today you find in Spain, you know, the running of the bull or people killing those animals in the ring. It's very vulgar, very degenerated. That tradition came from long ago. It was a symbolic thing, but over time people corrupted it. So sports, you know, if you're interested, you like sports, football, it's your business. You know, I don't, I mean, it is a violent sport, but I mean, I've, when I've seen football games in the past, you know, I don't find that they've left any super lasting mark on me in a negative way, but, you know, if you enjoy it, you enjoy it. Yes, sir, I think we're good. Appreciate it. Nice to meet you. Thank you.